We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From 1 Peter. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which rage war within your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are not a God who has stayed silent. You're not a God who is trying to keep us guessing about who you are and what you are like, but you have revealed yourself to us and your son and through your word. And so what we need this morning is we, we need eyes to see the beauty and the splendor of who you are. And we need ears to hear every ounce of good news that you have for us in this passage. Some of us, we we sit in this room this morning and we are desperate to hear from you. We, We feel like we are just looking for an ounce of hope in our life right now. And we need you to show up. And others of us, we come into this room and we we are so comfortable. We we are calloused to our need and we need you to break through. Some of us, we are here this morning just trying to figure out if we could actually ever believe these things. And maybe this is our very first time in a church ever. Would you help us to believe this morning that if that's where we are, we're not here by accident. We're not here even by our own choosing, but we are here because you have brought us here, all of us actually. And we all need to hear from you. We need, we need you to speak into our lives. And we pray that you would do that this morning in such a way that our lives would be changed and transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your seats. Uh, in early 2000s, the founders, two founders actually of a new startup company 
walked into the office of John Anioko. John Anioko was the, he was the CEO of Blockbuster. Now, at the time, Blockbuster was worth about $6 billion. They had over 9,000 stores, video rental stores across the world. And some of you are too young to remember this, but they had these things called VCRs and video cassette tapes. I mean, this is ancient, ancient stuff. And uh, like it's the kind of stuff you see in museums, you know. And uh, <laughs> we still have a bunch of those at our house. They've just been sitting in a closet forever. And I don't know why we don't just throw them away, because they're worth absolutely nothing. But the founders of, of this new company walked into John Anioka's office, and they had a new idea. They said, hey, rather than people actually having to walk into a store and rent a video cassette, what if we actually mailed them a DVD in the mail with a return envelope? And they could do all of this in the comfort of their own home. They offered to, to sell their business to Blockbuster for $50 million. Do you know what that business was? Netflix. Netflix. It's worth $229 billion today. Blockbuster, on the other hand, declared bankruptcy in 2010. Uh, do you know how many Blockbuster stores there are today? Uno, actually. One. There is one Blockbuster store. Some of you have probably seen that there's actually, here's the irony, there's a Netflix documentary about this one Blockbuster store. It's in Bend, Oregon. You know, Blockbuster failed. Netflix, on the other hand, Netflix has become like a verb. What are you, what are you doing tonight? Probably some Netflix. I mean, it has exploded while Blockbuster has failed. Now, here's the moral of the story. The reason Blockbuster failed is because they forgot who they were. Blockbuster thought that they were in the video rental business, but what they, what they forgot was that they were in the home entertainment business, and they failed. They forgot who they were. And you know, the same thing can happen in a church. It is so easy to forget who we are and why we exist. And when that happens, you know what we become? We become a group of individuals who get together once a week to drink some coffee, sing some songs, hear some teaching, and no one in this city cares that we are here. And we fail to be the kind of church that God calls us to be. We, we, we need a clear vision on what the church is supposed to be. And that's what we're going to spend the next three weeks doing. I'm really excited about this. We're actually going to uh, end our series, which will be Sunday, August 29th. So mark this on your calendar with a night of prayer. And we're going to do it in this room. And we're going to pray for the needs of our church and the mission and the vision of our church. And we're going to pray for our city. And we're going to pray for God to work. This is such an important series. I mean, I can't think of a more important time to do it. We are basically, I've said this to, to many people, you know, we're basically relaunching our church all over again as we're kind of coming out of COVID. 
So many of you, you are brand new to our church. You, you may have found us online, you started worshiping online, and then you started showing up. And many of you, you're exploring faith for the very first time. Some of you, you are coming back to faith for the first time in a long time. And the question that you're asking is, okay, well, what is this church about? And some of you have been around since the very first worship service that we had three years ago on March 18th, 2018. And you've heard us talk about this vision, but we need to come back to it over and over again unless we forget. And so what is our vision? What is our vision? Well, this is what we've said from day one, is that we want to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for our city. See, we are a church for the unconvinced and for our city. And the next two Sundays, we're going to get to the not just for ourselves part and what it means to be a church for the unconvinced and what it means to be a church for the city. But today I want to talk about what it means to be a church. And what I love about this passage is that it is one of the clearest descriptions in the whole New Testament of God's vision for the church. Now notice I said God's vision for the church because that is what we need. We do not need Brent's vision. We do not need our staff's vision. We don't need any person's vision. We need God's vision. What is God's vision for the church? What is God's hope for the church? That's the question we need to be asking. And you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I am all about Jesus, but I am not all that interested in the church. You know, institutional religion is not my thing. You know, we confessed earlier in the service, we believe in the church. Said so we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic doesn't mean the Catholic church. It means the universal church, the church across the globe. And throughout history, as it has been manifested in visible local congregations like this one. We confess that. We confess that we believe in the church. And you say, I, you know, institutional religion isn't my thing. The church isn't my thing. I'm interested in Jesus, but not the church. Let me remind you this. Do you know what Jesus calls the church? He calls the church his bride. Can you imagine saying to someone, I am really interested in a relationship with you. But your spouse, eh, not so much. Jesus loves the church. And he wants you to love the church. And he wants me to love the church. And get this, that is not meant to be a burden. It's actually meant to be a gift. But it is only a gift as you see God's vision for the church. So let's talk about that today. What is God's vision? And this passage tells us several things. Here's the first. It tells us that the church is a community of broken, messy people. The church is a community of broken, messy people. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up and your salvation. Now here's what's interesting about the book of 1 Peter. If you turn all the way back to the beginning, verses, verse 1. 
what you discover is that Peter is writing to a group of local churches in Asia Minor, which is actually what today is, it's modern day Turkey. He's writing to churches and to Christians in these churches. And he says, hey, stop being so mean. Stop being hypocrites. Stop being envious. Stop being deceitful. You know, you don't tell someone to stop being a hypocrite if they aren't one. You don't tell someone to stop being envious if they aren't. The only reason that the Apostle Peter would tell these Christians to rid their lives of these things is because they were still doing them. And I just, I love that this is where this passage starts when it's talking about the church because sometimes we have this idealistic vision of the church. We talk about it kind of through rose-colored glasses, what a, how awesome it is and what a great community is and how wonderful it is. And, and, and maybe that's what you were expecting from today's sermon, kind of this inspirational, out-of-touch sermon about the church. Well, we will get there. We will get to how incredible the church is. But that is not where God's vision of the church starts. This passage says that the church is a pretty messed up place. You know why? I'll give you a little secret here. Because there are people in it. Eugene Peterson says this, Every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. Now, I was just hoping there wasn't going to be an amen to that quote. But I'll amen that quote. I'll tell you somebody else who will amen that quote. My wife. You don't believe me? Go talk to her. She'll, she'll tell you plenty of things. See, none of us, this is a room full of people where none of us has it all together. Our vision of the church tends to be idealistic. God's vision of the church is very realistic. He says the church is not a place for perfect people. No, it is a place for broken people. It is not a place for people who have it all together. It is a place for people who are very messy. It's a place for people who cannot seem to get it right, no matter how hard they try or how much they want to. It's a place for people who have crossed lines they never thought they would cross. It's a place for people who have made a wreck of our lives in moments, who've hurt ourselves, who've hurt others around us. It's a place for people who are more of a mess than we even know. So realistic, God's vision of the church. And not only is it realistic, but it's freeing. It is so freeing. I love food shows. And uh, one of my favorite food shows is Parts Unknown. Do you remember the show with Anthony Bourdain? Uh, He goes around to kind of all of these, uh, some exotic and some kind of lesser known parts of the world to kind of taste food that's very particular to those parts of the world. One of the episodes takes place in Charleston, South Carolina. Near and dear to me, I'm from South Carolina. Uh, in this episode, uh, he is, uh, Bourdain is eating, in, he's in this upscale restaurant, and he's eating with this uh, award-winning chef named Sean Brock. And, you know, it's just like white tablecloths, and they've got all this amazing food. And Sean Brock learns that that Anthony Bourdain has never been to Waffle House. 
Now, some of you, you don't even know what Waffle House is, which is a tragedy in itself, all right? The closest Waffle House to Oakland, California is about 725 miles away in Arizona. So somebody needs to start a Waffle House close to us because Waffle House is an institution where I come from. They, they have this iconic yellow sign, and they're usually located very close to truck stops. And it's the kind of place that the later it is, in the night, like the better the food tastes. It's incredible. Waffle House is amazing. It makes Denny's look like fine dining, all right? So Sean Brock, he learns that Anthony Bourdain has never been to Waffle House. They're sitting around this incredible meal, this incredible table, and he, and he says, we are going to Waffle House right now. And so they get up and they leave, and they go to this Waffle House, and, and uh, Sean Brock starts ordering one of everything off the menu. And the beauty of Waffle House is you can get basically anything at any point of the day or of the night. So they've got a pecan waffle, hash brown and eggs, uh, T-bone steak. It's incredible. Um, and Anthony Bourdain uh, is blown away. He, he's like, this, this is incredible. And as they're sitting there uh, eating this meal, this monologue begins to play over the background of Anthony Bourdain talking about Waffle House. And this is what the monologue says. He says, it is indeed marvelous, an irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts, where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. The warm yellow glow of its sign is a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, and the seriously hammered all to come inside. It is a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. That is what the church is supposed to be. That's, that's actually one of the most apt descriptions that I've ever heard of the church. I mean, doesn't that sound amazing? Isn't that the kind of community that you long for? A place where, where regardless of who you are or what you have done, you are welcomed. A, a place where no matter how much of a mess you have made of your life, you belong. A place where you do not have to hide and you do not have to pretend, but you can be honest, you can be vulnerable, and you can be loved. That is God's vision for the church, a community of broken, messy people. And that's what we're trying to cultivate here at Resurrection Oakland. So if you're here this morning and you feel like my life is not perfect, you are in the right place because God welcomes you into his community called the church. It's a community of broken, messy people. Here's the second thing this passage teaches us. It's a community of people whose lives are knit together in radical interdependence and love. Look at verse 4. We'll keep going through the text. As you come to him, the living stone, that's talking about Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, this is an incredible image of the church. It says that the church is like a building, 
And some of us, we think, well, that's, yeah, that's kind of all the church is. It's this building that I go to on Sundays. But I want you to notice this. The metaphor does not say the church is a building that we go to. It says it's a building that our lives are actually engrafted into, that our lives actually help construct. We are living stones, is what Peter says. Now, if you go right outside these front doors, these corner doors on 17th and Franklin, and you turn around and you look back at the building, you know what you find? You'll see at the very bottom, the very base of the building, the very first stone that was laid when they built this building back in the early 1900s. It's called the cornerstone. And that's actually what verse 6 calls Jesus. He is the cornerstone of the church. But think about the metaphor of the cornerstone, because on top of that first stone that they laid out there are all of these other stones all of these other stones that are actually so, they're so connected and they're so dependent upon one another that if you took any one of them out, the whole building would be negatively affected. And here's the principle. Here's what this passage is saying is that to be a Christian, to be united to Jesus, the cornerstone by faith is to be united to his people. You cannot say, I choose Jesus, but not the church. Because to belong to Jesus is to belong to the church. And I think this is so challenging for so many of us because some of us, we just, we come to church and we just show up to get a little bit of teaching and a little bit of worship. But this, this passage is saying the church is meant to be so much more than that. It's meant to be your, that your life, it's a living stone. It is meant to be so connected to the body of Christ. It is so intertwined with other Christians and in Christian community that if you were to stop coming, the whole community would suffer compromise and loss. And in fact, so you cannot, you cannot do Christianity alone. In fact, let me go one step further. You cannot grow as a Christian on your own. Someone came up to me just last week and said, today is my very first Sunday here and I just became a Christian, and I am realizing that I need a church. I need a Christian community. And I said, yes. I mean, there are so many people who have been Christians for decades that have never realized that. You cannot do Christianity on your own. To belong to Jesus is to belong to his people. God will not just work in your life merely as an individual. He does it through community. See, Christianity, it's a personal faith. It says that you can know Jesus personally. You can receive him into your life personally. It's a personal faith, but it is never a private faith. It is never private. You have to do it with other people where it doesn't work. I've been a pastor for almost 17 years and I've seen so many people drift away because they've never gotten plugged into community. And some of you, you're discovering this the hard way. You're so frustrated with your spiritual life. You're saying, why am I not changing more? You know, why can't I seem to shake this habit or that habit? Or why can't I seem to shake these doubts that nag me and plague me? Or why do I feel so spiritually dry? It's because you're trying to do Christianity on your own. 
And you can't. And you know, some of you, you've been in this church for a very long time, but you have stayed on the fringes. And today God is saying, dive in. Dive in. And some of you are new and you're saying, well, how do I do that? How do I get plugged in? I want to encourage every single person in this room that if you want to make Resurrection Oakland your church home, get into a community group. You're going to hear us talking a lot about those in the coming weeks, a lot about those in the coming weeks. They're going to relaunch in early September. This is the primary way to get connected relationally in this church, to have your life intertwined with other Christians. It's the primary way that we seek to be a church where every single person feels known and cared for. You know, maybe you're here today and you're saying, I've, you know, I've been around this church for a while and I've actually tried. I've tried to get connected here. I've tried to do these things that you're talking about and it's not working. I have a favor to ask of you. Would you come talk to me about that? Or would you come talk to Pastor Dave about that? Would you help us grow in how to become a church that does this stuff better? Because we have got to get this right. Friends, this is what God calls us to. This is not my vision. This is not our staff's vision. This is God's vision for the church. Is that it's a community of people who love and who care for one another. And where every single person feels known and cared for. Because all of us, we need other people in our life. And you know what? We don't just need other people. You know what we need? We need people who are other. We need people who are different from us. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, but you are a chosen people. The, the word for people there is the word genos, the Greek word genos. You know what it means? It means race. You are a chosen race. Peter says to the church. That's a shocking thing because Peter is talking to a group of Christians who come from lots of different races and ethnic backgrounds. Some are Samaritans, some are Jews, some are Greeks, some are Romans. And what he is saying is this. This is so radical. He's saying no matter what race or ethnicity you come from, you are now a part of a whole new race when you become a Christian. A whole new race called the church. This multi-ethnic family. See, in Christianity, in the church actually, race and ethnicity are not a race. This is a very important conversation. It's a whole other sermon to have on another day. Race and ethnicity are not erased, but neither are they primary. The most fundamental thing about you, if you are a Christian, is that you are a Christian. You are a Christian before you are anything else. And this is why what historians will tell you is that the early church caught people's attention because they had this unique ability to bring people together who were from totally different backgrounds, people who did not look like one another. It's one of the unique things about the early church. In fact, uh, Kenneth Scott Lauderette, who is a historian, he taught at Yale. He studied the early church and he said this. He said, one aspect of the early church's uniqueness was its absolute inclusiveness. More than any other religion, 
It attracted all races and all classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. And even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. The philosophers of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only, and they could never win the masses. There was no other group that took in all groups and all stratas of society like the Christian church. Let me just say this. We're talking about the church today. What does it mean to be a church What's our vision as a church? One of our values as a church is we want to be a multi-ethnic church. That just like the early church caught people's attention because of their diversity, we want to do the same. We don't want to just reach our city. We want to reflect our city. That's one of the things that I love about Oakland is it is so diverse. There are so many different types of people here. And we want to reflect that diversity because the more we reflect it in this place, actually the more we reflect the beauty and the breadth of God's kingdom. Heaven will be the most diverse place you have ever seen or known. That's how the Bible ends, actually. It's a vision of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and color and creed and class around the throne of Jesus. Loving him and loving one another. You know, the more that we reflect that now, the more blessed we will be as a community, all of us. We don't want to be multi-ethnic just because we're trying to check some box. No, friends, we are missing out to the extent that we are not. And you know who else is missing out? Our city. More than our sermons, probably, that is what will make people curious about what God is doing in this place. The church is a diverse community. And yet, it is one where people's lives are radically united and interconnected. It is a messy community where broken people are welcomed. And here's the last thing. It is a community that exists for the sake of those who are not a part of it. One theologian has said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. See, we are a church, but not just for ourselves, but for those who don't believe what we believe, for our neighbors, for our city. And we're going to spend the next two weeks kind of unpacking that, but just very quickly, because I want you to see that, that all of that is right here in this passage on God's vision for the church. Look at verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, whenever the New Testament talks about good deeds, it's talking about works of justice and mercy. We are called to be people who are not just radically connected with one another, but who are radically just and who are radically merciful. 
people who are radically engaged in our city with our time and our energy and our talents, people who love this place sacrificially, who, who see the brokenness, not just the beauty of Oakland. There's so much beauty in our city and there is so much brokenness and we are called to see it and we are called to not turn away from it, but to move towards it. To be the very presence of Jesus in this place, the hands and the feet of our King. We're called to be people who don't just pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but we are called to be agents of that kingdom. Not just for ourselves. You know, one of the greatest temptations for us as a church and particularly as we have grown, I've seen this, is that there is this gravitational pull to just become very insular and to become about ourselves and to forget that we do not exist for ourselves, but we exist for others. And that's what we're going to be talking about the next two weeks is what does that look like? But I want to end today with this question. How do we become the kind of church we've been talking about today? A church where broken people feel safe and welcomed. A church that loves our city. A church where people are deeply connected and feel known and cared for. And a church that reflects not just the beauty and breadth of our city, but the beauty and breadth of God's kingdom. How do we become that church? Well, Kenneth Scott Lauderette, who, who I quoted earlier, he concludes by saying this. He says, the one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness is probably the teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way to salvation, but the Son of God accomplishing salvation then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. The answer to the question of how we become this kind of church lies in the salvation that is made possible in Jesus Christ. See, the church, let me just say this, the church is a community of people who have experienced the miracle of salvation. Do you know if you're a Christian, it's a miracle? It's a miracle. The next time when someone says, you're a Christian, you should be like, yeah, I can't believe it either. It's a miracle. It's incredible. Salvation is a miracle. And this passage tells us just three very quick things about the miracle of salvation. They're all right here. We're going to look at them very quickly. How you get it, what it means, and why it's possible. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, are we launching into sermon two? No, this is very brief. <laughs> all three of these, how you get it, what it means, why it's possible, are right here in verses 9 and 10. First, how do you get it? Verse 9 says this, you are a chosen people. You're a chosen people. Now notice, it does not say you are a choice people. Big difference. If God were saying you're a choice pe people, God is saying, you know what? You are better candidates for my salvation than others. I've got better raw material to work with in you. And so I'm going to 
I'm going to work with you. Your choice. No, no, no. This passage says you are chosen, not choice. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. If you were a Christian, it is not because there is something good in you. It's because there is something incredibly gracious in God. You do not earn salvation. You simply receive it. It's a gift. That's how you get it. And you say, okay, well, but what does that actually mean? What does salvation mean? Well, look at verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That word special possession means treasured possession. Of all the things that God possesses, you are his most treasured possession. Well, what does God possess? Everything. God made everything. God owns everything. And out of all the things in the world, God treasures you more than he treasures anything else. Here is what salvation means. It means that God loves you and he delights in you more than you could ever fathom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Some of, some of us have been told our whole lives that we would never amount to anything. Some of us in this room, we feel forgotten by the world. You know, if statistics hold true, there are people in this room who you're considering taking your own life. You feel like nobody cares. Some of us in this room, we have been rejected by our own spouses. You feel so undesirable, so unlovable. Some of us in this room, we have been incredibly successful, so driven in life and career, but underneath that drive is this deep insecurity that you are loved unconditionally, and that's what has driven you to succeed, to say, I am defined by what I do. Some of us, we look at our lives and we think, how could God ever love someone like me like this. You know, maybe God accepts me. Maybe he tolerates me. But he can never delight in me. No, friends, salvation means that you are his treasured possession. And when that sinks into your life, it changes everything. But it will not sink into your life until you see why it is even possible. Why is it possible? Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the miracle of salvation. Broken, messy people like us are welcomed into the people of God. We are welcomed into the family of God because on the cross, Jesus was excluded from it. 
The Christian gospel says God does not just welcome broken people, but he was broken for us. And he took God's judgment so that we could have God's mercy. That's what Peter is saying. And friends, not just his mercy, but his delight, his favor, his smile, so that we could be his treasured possession. And that is what is offered to you in the Christian gospel and is what is offered to you today in this table. And it is what will transform us into the people that God has called us to be and into the church that God has called us to be. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Given for you. For you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and this meal and for the welcome that we receive in it. The welcome of God. A God who welcomes broken Messy people. Father, if we are honest with ourselves, all of us, we come crawling and stumbling to this table today. But what this table tells us is that you run to us and you receive us with eager and open arms and you delight in us. And so would you help us to believe that today as we eat and drink together, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.